Hi, and welcome back to another episode of the Be A Better Ally podcast. My name is Trisha Friedman. My pronouns are she and her. On today, I have the joy of bringing you a conversation with Caitlin, who is one of my favorite educators on Twitter to follow. So be sure to head over to the show notes um, to learn how you too can follow Caitlin online. I've learned so much from them. I think you will as well. Um, And this conversation just so many great ideas. So after you are done listening, uh, please do reach out to Caitlin and be sure to connect. Before we jump into that conversation, I have a quick message from one of the show's sponsors. um, And this message I think is appropriately timed. Are you looking for fun and unique gifts for loved ones and the opportunity to support a queer teacher-owned small business? Check out Brown Bull Designs on Etsy at brownbulldesigns.etsy.com. They have the cutest fall leather earrings and some original holiday decor. They can be found on Facebook and Instagram at Brown Bull Designs. Listeners of this podcast will receive 15% off all purchases with the special code, which is ally21. So be sure to visit brownbulldesigns.etsy.com and use that code ally21 at checkout to get that discount. Happy holidays. All of the information about ways to support this queer teacher-owned small business are in the show notes. Now, on with the show. I'm Caitlin Cornwell. Um, My pronouns are they, them, and I teach drama and math this year at the American Embassy School. Um, I'm a queer and non-binary international educator, and this is my first overseas post, and I am um, in heaven. I'm really glad to hear that, actually. We'll we'll kind of dig into uh, the work that you're doing at your school, but I kind of want to zoom out. You know, uh, I've been following you for a while on social media, and I don't think it was until um, fairly recently that I realized that you do both math and drama. That's such a unique combination that I feel like you don't come across that often. And I'm sort of wondering um, how you know, working in both of those zones, if there are any links, just skill sets or even mindsets that help in the work that you do for LGBTQ plus inclusion. Yeah. Um, I can't get over the fact that you say you've been following me for a while. Cause I'm a little starstruck with that. So, uh, let me take a moment. Um, the, yeah, absolutely. And I, um, I think that all of those facets of my life are very much intertwined. I've not really thought about it in that way, but the archetypes that are sometimes in our our cultural ethos of like, this is what it means to be a math person. This is what it means to be a drama person. This is what it means to be queer. This is what it means to be trans. Um, I really like trying to bust open all of those preconceptions and biases that we have. Um, For students, I love developing their sense of self within a math classroom. Um, I think, you know, I grew up in a a time where to be good at math was meant, meant that you can do a lot of really hard problems quickly without making mistakes, and it takes very little effort. And that was something that I very much internalized. And so now having the space to co-create a classroom environment with young people where 
they can explore, they can persevere, they can be creative, they can work together. Um, uh, divergent thinking is valued. You know, I think that that is, um, I wish that I had been in that kind of math class growing up. And I think drama is the same way. You know, I, I came to being a drama major from being a math major because I was in a really boring drama class. And I was like, in college, I was like, how can you have a really boring drama class? Drama is one of the most interesting things in the world. And then I realized, much like when I realized that I was queer, um, not everybody feels like drama is the most interesting thing in the world. And that it made me even more excited about bringing drama to life for young people. And I, you know, it's really interesting when you started to answer that question and you talked about, you know, uh, a space where students can be exploring their identities. Like I initially thought you were going to jump in and be talking about drama, um, you know, so that was, again, yeah, I would have loved to have been a part of a math class like that as well. Um, and of course, you know, when, when students are able to explore their identities, one of the best places to do that in a school is in a GSA. And I know that you are involved in your school's GSA uh, and somehow it is already December. I don't know how that happened. It's actually like already almost January. Um, and I'm wondering if you could just sort of update us a little bit, um, your school's GSA, what's been going on there? Yeah, we are lucky enough to have two GSAs. There's actually a gender and sexuality alliance in the high school that's been around for like eight, nine years. It um, precedes me. And then a couple of years ago, I guess last year, midway through the year, I just kind of announced to our admin, I should probably apologize to them for this, but I just kind of announced to them that I was starting a GSA and in the middle school. And um, they were really receptive and, and supportive and like, how do we make this happen? And um, really honoring the, the things that are needed for a confidential GSA space. And with students, we talked a lot about confidentiality. This is when we were all online. I mean, kids were at home. And although we would like to believe that everybody was happy and healthy and safe and affirmed at home, that's not always the case. And especially for our LGBTQIA kiddos. Uh, um, so our online GSA last year, I will answer your question, but our online GSA last year was just beautiful. It was magical. It was probably the highlight of my year because the students showed up. They um, sometimes had their camera on, sometimes had their camera off, sometimes came in with a different name, sometimes were trying out different voices, sometimes um, they were trying out different pronouns. And I say trying out because these were, this was sometimes, and they said this, the only space where they could do that. Um, there were, you know, really quick, like, I gotta go, my, my family's coming in. You know, there's a, a tension between who they want to be, who they can be in GSA and who they feel safe to be at home. Um, this year, as we've been 100% in person for the first semester of our school year, our school has worked very hard to um, make sure that we're able to do that safely. Kids haven't really seemed to need the GSA. 
So I would like to tell myself that um, they're not coming to GSA because they feel really affirmed and safe and they've got these beautiful, authentic connections with classmates and faculty. Um, and I, I worry that maybe the pressure of needing to physically walk into a room prevents some students from feeling like they can participate in the GSA. Um, I, I think I work hard to make sure that this space is what students need it to be. So the couple of students, I mean, it, it's very small. Sometimes it's three of us, including me. Um, they want it to be a, a small social space. And so we've played card games. We've um, done some of the like queer coloring books, learning about um, historical and political figures and just talking and chatting. Um, which is okay. Like I'm okay if the kids are okay, but it's just so interesting to look at how vibrant. I mean, I actually, there were two online clubs. There was a rainbow club that had been going all year. That was my kind of internalized homophobia, cisnormativity um, attempt at having a GSA. I was like too nervous to be like, this is a club for LGBTQIA students and their, their allies. So we had this identity club and from the beginning of the year, kids were like, I want to talk about Black Lives Matter. I want to talk about um, the uh, 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 neurodivergence and how like, I mean, the kids were amazing with what they wanted to explore and talk about and unpack and the vulnerability that they came to those spaces with and sharing their own concerns and fears and knowledge. Kids were facilitating sessions. Um, I was working with them to kind of coach them up on how to create a slideshow because we were in Zoom. Um, and then, you know, how are you going to anticipate um, people having questions? And I mean, it was just, it was so cool. So I, I do feel a little bit like I'm failing as the GSA advisor this year, but you know, it's when I put it back, the kids are getting what they want. I'm checking in with kids. We're providing um, multiple opportunities throughout the year for students to join, for us to kind of pivot, for us to check in. Is this the best day after school? Um, so I, I think I think it's okay, even though it's growing and evolving. I mean, it sounds like it's better than okay. And I, you know, what you're describing reminds me of something that I hear that is very common in GSA spaces. And that's sort of the, the educator facilitator, their awareness that it's like that space has to be co-constructed, that it's not necessarily one where a traditional power dynamic is going to thrive, where it's, you know, I say X, you do Y. Um, you know, and, and I think that's just something that our community prides itself on is like, let's listen to each other and let's find out what we need and, um, you know, honor that flexibility. Um, and I'm, I'm kind of curious, you know, you brought up student leadership, student voice, student facilitation. I'm seeing a lot of that too, this switch to almost us saying that, you know, our students are passionate about these issues. They're well-read. They, you know, they are engaged. We almost need to step aside a little bit and, and let them sort of just take the lead. And I'm wondering how, um, how else you're seeing sort of the role of the GSA in schools and communities shifting either, you know, with stakeholder involvement um, or student motivation, or, you know, as we were just talking about this idea that it's not necessarily a thing that is teacher driven, um, but is more, you know, making space for student voices. 
that for too long have been sort of not necessarily listened to by the dominant culture at school. For sure. Yeah. Um, I have to pause and thank Dr. Sunshine Campbell because she has been my mentor the last couple of years in terms of, you know, when we say we want to honor student voice, you can, as an educator, you can say that you want to do that and you can like ask for any announcements at the end of the meeting, or you can like, you know, have a couple of student leaders who you tell what is going to happen in the meeting. But Dr. Campbell uh, really showed me what it means to put that into practice and make sure that, you know, you're not tokenizing student engagement, but you're really developing in them and with them the ability for them to lead. And I think, you know, working at, at um, a school that just has amazing kids, our students are just, you know, I can't wait for them to be in charge of the world. We just have to get out of their way. And sometimes we have to help them navigate social dynamics. Sometimes we have to, um, you know, help them understand how to lead a meeting or like uh, what it means to be um, facilitating a conversation where you don't agree with some of the things that are being said. And those are all critical skills for us as adults. So if we can help our middle schoolers and high schoolers develop those skills, I think that that's, you know, GSA for me is not just about creating a safe space. It's about using that. I mean, yes, it is that. And it's about helping students develop necessary skills, whether that's resilience, whether that's um, self-advocacy, whether that's uh, the ability to disagree or like, like help someone interrogate a problematic thing that they said. I mean, it's just the conversations that we have in GSA are sometimes amazing. And the best conversations are usually when I'm quiet or, or, you know, ask a small open-ended question that allows the students to really dive into the, the deeper stuff. So much of what you've just said really resonates with me. And as you're describing, you know, that reality that sometimes the best conversations in any classroom are ones where, you know, teachers, facilitators hush up a little bit. I agree. That's been my experience too. And I know sometimes when we share that, um, there is a fear and I feel like, you know, I have had that fear before too of, okay, if I'm letting go of that control, anything can happen, which is often true, even if we don't let go of the control. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I, you know, I, I know, and I, I completely understand, you know, there's so much pressure on educators. I, I feel like we, we put it on ourselves. It's also there, uh, you know, we're doing a gazillion things a day for the person who's listening and they're thinking, Caitlin, that sounds great. I would love, I would love to let go of some of the control, um, and do what you're doing easier said than done. What are some of the ways that, uh, or, or what's been some of the, the learning that's allowed you to do that? And I kind of almost want to piggyback to that first question, because I'm thinking I, you know, math is not my forte. It's not my strength. So I don't know what is, is there in your mathematical toolkit that might be useful, but certainly with drama and theater, you kind of have to be comfortable with the chaotic because sometimes it's the chaotic that leads to the magic. So yes. I'm actually going to stop talking so that you can get to this never ending no. question that I'm. That's great. And I think you just hit it that I want you to take this vision that you have of 
my drama classroom is being chaotic and exploratory and like the beautiful stuff coming out of the fact that it seems like it's utter chaos. And then I want you to just replace my drama students with my sixth grade math students, because sometimes when, <laughs> you know, as a professional who wants to keep their job, um, I sometimes worry that if, if an admin or, you know, the director or, or even a colleague walks into my math classroom, they're going to be like, uh, this is not okay. And I always, I love those moments because I can explain exactly why that chaos is necessary. Why the loud voices, students wanting to like explain why, um, what their perspective and why, how they see it and, and why they think this is, you know, the path to go. It's just a different topic instead of drama and how we're going to light the scene or uh, the best way to tell that story or who they think that character is. They're talking about the possible ways to arrange those numbers or, um, you know, the the um, the order in which they need to address those steps. I mean, it's it's very cool. And the more years I teach, the closer my math and my drama classes come to, you know, I have sixth grade math students and seventh and eighth grade drama students. So usually people know what class it is by the grade level, but in terms of the energy of the classroom, I hope that people kind of struggle to know what class they just walked into. Um, but I think the other thing that I, if, if I could give a piece of advice to educators, it would be that I was definitely trained that to be a good educator meant that I had, I could anticipate every single possible outcome of that lesson. I was literally taught that in my college courses. So I went into my student teaching and I went into my first couple of years of teaching, thinking that to be a good educator, to be a professional, to be someone that the admin would be proud of, to be someone that my teammates would be proud of, to be someone that my students could trust and respect, I had to anticipate every single outcome of the lesson. And that worked as a brand new educator, you know, that, that was kind of necessary, but the more I trust myself as an educator, the more I teach and I'm more familiar with the content and the standards and the, and the possible pathways, I learned to trust the kids. So most of my, my math questions, math lessons are more about like prompts. I love Dan Meyer's three act lessons. I love these things where we just give students little problems, like, like tasks and um, open-ended tensions in the world. And then we help them see how math is a tool to alleviate some of that chaos. And in, in my classroom, I can't do that didactically. I can't, you know, have my 10 minute overview where I teach the kids how to do that. And then they go sit and do it on a worksheet. I want to start the class with them saying like, well, we could do this and we could try that. And why don't we do that? But it's scary. And it does take a whole lot of me saying, I'm going to trust the process. I'm going to trust that if a kid asks me, I mean, kids all the time come up with ways of solving things that I'm like, that doesn't work, but I don't know why. Can you give me 24 hours? And I'd love to think about that. Wow. I've never, I've never seen someone try to solve this problem this way. You just taught me something. Can you give me 24 hours to explain why it works or why it doesn't work? Um, and kids love that. They love and. I've definitely postured myself as a person who is learning with them 
And for some students, they love that. And for other students, they definitely think that I'm a fluke. How did this person get to teach, you know, be my teacher at such a great school? Um, but I'm about creating a culture. I hope my students feel like I'm about creating a culture where we're co-collaborating and that I might have done math problems or like these kinds of math problems for a decade, but that doesn't mean that I've got the right way to solve them, but it's scary. And I wonder how much of that, I mean, I feel like everything that you just said also taps back into almost like our queer superpowers of just because it was that way does not necessarily mean still continually has to be, or almost kind of a skepticism if someone says this is the recipe. Mm, is it? Why? Who gets to say so? Um, and I kind of almost just wonder if there's a little bit of, of that. Sometimes I really, it, it strikes me now. I feel like any queer educator I've had a conversation with, there's almost a different level of permission that we've either given to ourselves or, or feel like we've had to take. Mm -hmm. um, it, you know, it just this notion that one size fits all was sort of the educational model that many of us went through. It didn't work we want to bring something a little bit more radical and just more humane into the classroom with us. Um, I don't know if that sounds close yeah. to right, warm. Cold. Yeah, absolutely. And it makes me wonder, you know, about marginalized identities in a, in a more macro level, you know, folks who've learned to speak someone else's language, folks who've learned to navigate spaces that were not built for them. There is a certain level of perseverance and, internal sense of, and I still exist, and my reality is still valid. Even if I don't see it mirrored in my schooling or my community or in the way that adults talk, I know how I feel. And so for my LGBTQIA kids, for my students who think that they're quote unquote not math students, or my students who come to drama and are terrified that they got put in a drama class. I mean, it's, it doesn't discriminate this idea that like, I think I align with this class. I think I don't align with this class. I think that, you know, the way adults talk about gender affirms who I am. I think the way that adults talk about, or my peers talk about gender does not affirm who I am. I do think that there's a resiliency and an expansiveness that queer folks have had to learn to navigate. Absolutely. Yeah, almost like a suspicion that more is possible. Um, yeah. Uh, Caitlin, I know that you are very, very active in professional development in many different ways. And I'm wondering what some of, um, you know, some of the recent learning that you've done is, is on your mind. I know that we're headed into a break. So what's been some professional development that, that you know, even into the break, like it's going to be at least partially on that back burner. Yeah. Um, I do have my stack of books. I am one of those people that I've been like putting them away as the weeks pass, like, oh, this is my winter break reading. Um, I, I think that a lot of the learning that I've done has been around anti-racism um, and really uh, Darnell Fine, Elisa Paredes, Kevin Simpson with ALOC. Um, those folks have really changed the way that I think about my own whiteness and my own privilege. Um, and then, of course, that directly connects to my sense of 
being queer and being non-binary. Um, I think the biggest learning that has happened for me is that idea that if a black person, if an Indian person tells me something that I'm going to naturally have a defensive reaction of like, well, that's not my reality or here's why, you know, you're just being sensitive or here, you know, and that's my, that's my internalized white supremacy. And as I've learned to parallel that training myself to pause, training myself to say, oh, just because I want to defend does not mean that I should defend. It means I'm feeling a defensiveness. What about my experience, my reality, my upbringing, my privilege allows me to believe A, that that person is wrong and that B, my experience is more valid. So training myself to check that white supremacy has been a, a life changer, a perspective changer. And when I think about being a queer non-binary person and being one of, if not the only out non-binary person on our campus, when I say something from my perspective, and someone's initial reaction is, well, that's not true. And that's, you know, here's why that's not. And this person, everybody else says that that's not the case. I am slowly learning to, to hold my space and say, well, what, what about everyone else's experience? Maybe doesn't, why don't their perspectives echo mine? Or what about me is maybe different than other folks. And why, what about my experiences maybe, um, led me to believe this, whereas other folks have been led to believe or feel this other way. So it's, I'm slowly gaining the confidence to be able to hold my ground and speak my truth. And even when it feels like I'm speaking upstream um, and also learning that it's okay to protect myself and that there are some risks. And, and we, I talk to my students about this all the time, that there are some risks that are too big and that I can't tell them whether a risk is too big or a good level of risk. So in all of my classes and in GSA, we talk about good levels of risk and how sometimes you, we need to protect ourselves. And that might mean not advocating or not speaking up or not being the upstander, that there are gonna be days where we have to just like hunker down almost and, and protect ourselves and our, our hearts and our minds. And that's, you know, it's, it's very real and it's very true. And, you know, I think there are schools where there are professional learning communities where even, you know, if someone said queer or said white supremacy. <gasps> yes, that happened to me at our, uh, I was sharing a whiteness accountability flyer and I got emails back from colleagues. Like I don't, I'm uncomfortable from who I perceive to be a Caucasian person um, saying, I'm uncomfortable with using the word white in that way. And that engaged us in this incredible back and forth where we, I was like, I did not realize that that would be offensive to you. And like, why is that offensive to you? And it's like necessary to talk about for me. And uh, it was, uh, yes, <laughs> language is, is very powerful. Well, and I, I, I can't suss out and you don't have to disclose whether or not that conversation went into a productive place or not, but, you know, even having those conversations 
you know, there's a spectrum, right? Like there's different learning communities that we're a part of where challenge is invited, where we realize good tension is going to lead somewhere. It's going to help us. Let's not shy away from it. And then of course there are other communities where, Ooh, someone says something that makes them uncomfortable. All the whole deck of cards just collapses. And I'm wondering again, because I know that you've been a member of many different types of learning groups, you know, if you had to kind of just qualify, like these are some of the traits that make for really, for the kinds of professional learning communities that we need, um, that, that are going to help us make progress so that you don't feel like you're talking upstream, as you mentioned before. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? You know, if professional learning communities could aspire to, um, what would that, what would that look and feel like maybe? Yeah, I think that we have to go to the most marginalized folks in our community and ask them what they need to feel like they belong. Ask them what they think our community needs in order to develop a safe space. I think what happens, um, and this goes back to the some of the PD that I've been in with folks from other schools and other environments, is that the people in power say, we have a safe space. And why can't people just speak up from their perspectives? But when we are in such nuanced environments like international schools often are, there can be a perpetuation of one type of culture to the detriment of another type of culture. In India, there is a, a pretty strict hierarchy and so the idea that an Indian TA is going to go straight to a supervisor or straight to um, an, an administrator and voice their concern is, I think, a little bit of us perpetuating kind of a Western idea of like, we're all equal and why can't we all just share our concerns? So making sure that the space is very comfortable, safe, and inclusive of folks who we don't hear from a lot, whether they're not the administrators, whether they're not um, on the board or you know, not the most vocal students. I think we have to ask those folks. And, and this, and it's tough though, because we don't want to put the unpaid emotional labor on the already marginalized members of our community. But I think that sometimes our way of circumnavigating that is to say like, oh, 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 well, we'll just make the decisions for you, or we'll just do, we'll just create the space for you. But then we look around and we're like, why aren't there any marginalized folks on our committee? Or why didn't anybody step up? And then we can fill in those gaps. We can say, oh, well, I'm sure they're just busy, or I'm sure they're like, you know, underpaid, or I'm sure they've got families or, or whatever the excuse might be. But I also think that that's how the system stays the same. To answer your question in one sentence, I think that making sure that we have a safe environment for folks who are traditionally marginalized, who already are existing at the, the corners of our community and figuring out ways that we can, even if this means overhauling our system, figuring out the ways that we can center those folks and make sure that they feel they belong make sure that they feel that they can speak up and make sure that our system is one where we're not prioritizing certain voices over other voices. 
And I, you know, what you're talking about is I think really just acknowledging that power and power dynamics have corroded a lot of, I mean, yes, of course, school society, but not denying it, acknowledging it, being realistic about it. And, uh, you know, maybe instead of, you know, assuming that folks will bring problems forward, assume there are a whole lot of reasons that folks will not feel comfortable doing with that. Uh, You know, I, I just kind of think it's, it's, moving away from that, as you said earlier, well, of course people can voice their concerns there. You know, I feel like I've heard that repeated a lot too. And certainly I would hope we're at a place where no, no, actually, uh, you know, you've made it very difficult. A lot of schools have made it very, very difficult um, for anyone outside of the dominant culture to say anything, uh, you know, and I kind of think we often will mask so-called professionalism, uh, you know, uh, around that. So uh, I, I really, I, I appreciate that point of just flipping that assumption of everybody is safe and cozy, uh, you know, and, and schools sometimes even say things like, we're one big family. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And then I want to go like, well, let's, can I go talk to members of your community? Can I ask them if they feel like they belong, if they feel like this is a, a family to them? And when we get down to it, folks might have their professional answer of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel like I belong. But then if we go to the next level of, do you feel like you can bring every aspect of your identity into your teaching or into your work or into your leadership, if you wanted to do that? I've had people say, no, oh no, 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 no. There's this like the, the sanitized version of themselves. And, and I'm not saying that everybody needs to be out. I'm not saying that everybody needs to be like super vocal about childhood traumas or anything like that. What I'm saying is that, do you feel like you can bring your full self to your workspace if you want to? And that's where I think folks with privilege whether it's racial privilege, whether it's, you know, as a queer person, I felt pretty comfortable talking about my partner. I felt comfortable, you know, people were very inclusive. They would be like, oh, make sure you bring her to that party or that event. But as soon as I came out as non-binary, there was this like, oh, well, that's, that's too much. That's too hard. Or like, you know, the, the grammatical um, pushback on why my pronouns weren't valid. And I was like, I don't understand what's happening right now. I've just show, shared with you who I am and you're trying to give me a grammar lesson. I've told you how to affirm how I see myself and you're trying to, to refer me back to a dictionary. Like, and those are the same people who will tell you that language evolves. And it's like, it's just so mind blowing. But I think that this is a place where folks who have privilege, whether that's, as I said, being queer, I could hold space for other LGBTQIA plus folks. I, I, I try to hold space for um, non-white folks in conversation. Like when I look around a room and we're all melanin lacking people, like calling that out and just saying, I, I don't, anyway, I go on all day about that. <laughs> I hear you. And, uh, you know, it's, it's even that piece of, can you talk about privilege? Can a conversation or a reflection around privilege happen? Will people grapple with that? And, you know, it's interesting, you know, you're talking about uh, almost the different 
oh, I can talk about this with you, but I can't go that far. And I almost wonder, you know, even the one that I, you know, when I, when I first really started to grapple with it a while ago, it was like, ooh, and that's even just the power dynamic of teacher to learner, right? And, you know, yes, there were absolutely times in my career where I had that power and I abused it, you know, like even just sort of all the different jokes about like the teacher face or the look, um, right. you know, and, um, you know, of course I'm disappointed in myself that I, I used to do that. Um, or, you know, that that was something that was almost like a flex that I knew, I knew I could go to, you know, if, if things were going quote unquote off course that it's like, I could make a face, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and I, I think even just acknowledging there is a power d- dynamic in all of our classrooms, um, even sometimes I think just starting with that um, can be a difficult step. Yep. And that can be as simple as saying, well, here's the first step I would take to solve this problem. Or here's how, you know, asking students to share their thinking. And then me also offering up my thinking, not in a, and here's the right answer kind of way, but just in a, oh, that's really cool. Okay. Now I see what you're saying. And this goes, this is in drama and math. Um, Oh, I see what you're saying. Cool. I'd never thought about it like that. It's so interesting. My brain saw this piece and then this piece and then this piece so that I'm just contributing to the conversation the same way that my students are contributing to conversations. And that also requires that students speak to each other the way that they would speak to me. So students don't always agree with me. Students, I mean, I mess up in class all the time. I have mistakes and my problems and stuff, but students have to learn to talk to me and point out my mistakes the same way that they would point out each other's mistakes. And that's developing skills. They need to be kind, compassionate adults, right? Uh, and that's, uh, you know, I, I love that you're saying this is, this is drama, this is math as well. And it is kind of the, like, you know, I've, I've participated in some improv exercises and they're really, knew it. I knew I liked you, <laughs> <laughs> but they're, I think they're so great for, for adults. I really, truly believe that. Um, and you know, your, your point around just that idea of mistakes are going to happen. Let's have that be a part of it, not necessarily like end scene, you know? Yep. Yep. And improv, you can't just stop and be like, oh, I didn't like that response. Can we start over? And I think that that, I love teaching middle schoolers improv and they see it as like, oh, this is going to help me debate with my guardians. Like this is going to help me like extend my curfew, or this is going to help me develop the skills I need to talk my, my mom into getting me a puppy, you know, like, and I'm, and I always say, yeah, kinda. And these are the skills that you need. Yes. And these are the skills that you're going to need when you enter, go into an interview or when you talk to a career counselor or whatever. Yeah. Cool. Absolutely. Uh, Caitlin, you've given up so much of your time in the middle of December. I am so appreciative of that. So final question again, I know that some folks will be getting ready to either like queue up their streaming service of their preference, or, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a big reader like you are as well. Um, is there any sort of media that you would recommend to listeners as a, I love this. I think you might too. Yes. Um, well, I think just to honor the legacy and brilliance of bell hooks, I think if you can get your hand on anything that bell hooks wrote, you should read it. Um, I, I've been seeing a lot of people talking about how 
even if you've never read Bell Hooks, your life has probably been influenced by her writing and her thinking. Um, so just, you know, to honor her passing, I would, I would really urge people to get their hands on something from Bell Hooks and go to a Black-owned bookstore if you have that opportunity or, a, um, you know, avoid the other systems that uh, might put money in pockets of white people. But uh, anyway, Bell Hooks. And then if you're a social media lover, uh, Alok, A-L-O-K, is on Instagram and they have a beautiful, um, just visually striking, but also intellectually stimulating Instagram page. Um, I'm sure they're also on Facebook, but I, I just follow them on, on Instagram and they do book reports. They also are just an amazing advocate for gender expansiveness and the way that, um, you know, dress doesn't tell us who a person is, that um, hair, body hair doesn't tell us who a person is. And um, I just think that they're a poet, they're uh, an activist. They have a book um, out. So uh, get your hands on anything that Alok is doing right now too. Thank you so much for those recommendations. Um, I will include those over there in the show notes. Caitlin, just really excited to finally get the opportunity to chat with you. And hopefully in 2022, we can touch base again. Um, uh, I'd love to have another conversation just, you know, again, about student voice, how it's showing up, as you say, not just in your GSA, but, um, you know, the ways that it's, we have a lot to learn from our students. Uh, if we can just sort of get a little more comfortable with the notion that chaos is, it can be good. Yeah. Necessary sometimes. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time.